0: Danny, if you stick around, we might get you to start preaching, man. (laughs) Grateful for that. Absolutely. Well, good morning. morning. And it is good to see you guys here. Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. And welcome online also. Uh, Do you guys ever hear the phrase, you know, there are two types of people and the... uh, I looked it up. Actually, there's one. There are three kinds of people in the world: those who know math and those who don't. That was one. But I actually Googled two types of people in the world. That's what I Googled. Do you know how many possibilities came up? It says one billion ninety million. So that took me a while to go through all of those. But so here are a few. Uh, yeah, some of them you'll figure out, we'll, we'll start easy. There are two types of people in the world. There are cat people and… and dog people. Yeah, the cat people couldn't let that pass. So yeah. There are Coke people and… Yeah, in the earlier service nobody said Pepsi and I thought Pepsi's got to work in their marketing. They're losing some ground. There are early bird people and then there are n- night owl people. There are beach people, and then there are mountain people. There are people who see things as, they see the glass as half full, and there are people who see the glass as half empty. There are spenders, and there are savers. When it comes to peanut butter, yeah, they don't say jelly. It's it's either creamy or, although jelly sounds good. I think it sounds... This is really important. When it comes to toilet paper, <laughs> there's the over the roll or the under the roll. That's just another way of saying there's right and there's wrong, <laughs> right? I was scrolling down to Mark Twain has said one time, there are basically two types of people, people who accomplish things and people who claim to have accomplished things. The first group is less crowded. Frederick Collins says, there are those who walk into a room and say, here I am. And then there are those who walk into a room and say, there you are. Mm, That's good. There's another one. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those who need closure. Some of you are going to need to ask somebody to explain that one to you. What if we were to ask a white-haired gentleman 2,000 years ago named John, "Are there two kinds of people in the world?" And he would say, without hesitation, "Yes." See, John and his brother James, a dad, owned a fishing business. Jesus came along and said, "Follow me." They became." part of his inner circle, walked with him for three years, saw him do miracles, heard him teach, saw him do life, heard him laugh, saw him cry, saw him crucified, saw him risen again, saw him ascended. They, they partnered with their, the others and spread the gospel throughout the Mediterranean region and to the uttermost ends of the world. John lived to be an old man unlike most of his friends. They were martyred. John was persecuted, but he wasn't killed for his faith. He, faith, he was martyred as a… or he was persecuted as an old man and exiled to a place called Patmos, an island. He wrote his Gospel. He wrote the book of Revelation. And he also wrote three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 1st John, chapter 5, verse 11, He reveals something way more than cats and dogs and superficial. He talks about ultimately all of humanity can be divided into two types of people. And this is the testimony God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. I want you to don't see this as stale words on some religious document. This is a man who lived with Jesus, who saw Jesus, who saw the risen Christ, whose life was transformed supernaturally. He said, whoever has the Son has life, and whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There are two types of people on this planet, he would say, and I'm going to let the two sides of this stage illustrate. There are those who do not have life. There are those who are dead. And then there are those who have life. And in John's writings over 70 times, about 71 times, he uses their various words to to describe who we are and those various words all can be translated in English, life. But only about 15 of them are referring to heart beating, lung breathing. The rest of them are referring to a Greek word, zoe, which is the life of God. So it's — it's not just about whether my heart is beating but whether my heart is fulfilled. It's the life of God. He said, we're all born dead and the journey is to come back to life. Now, if I'm dead, I'm still in His image. I can create. I can laugh. I can love. But it's muted. It's truncated because I'm dead in the separation from the life of God. There are two types of people, John would say. There are those who are dead and there are those who are alive, and the line of demarcation has everything to do with Christ alone. Those who have the Son of God have life. Those who don't have the Son of God do not have life. Which is why our vision for this season at Northland Church is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. Engaging one another as an alive community, but also lovingly, authentically journeying with people who don't yet know that life and say, we just want to explain to you what Jesus is doing in us. Jesus in John 10.10, the thief wants to steal and kill and destroy this place of death, even though it's a place where I'm still an image bearer, I'm lacking the sustenance of what I was originally intended to do as a human being, and that's be fully alive to God's glory. He says, but I've come that you might have life. Have it to the full. Have it according to what you were originally intended for, which is why we're in the midst of this series of teaching in John's Gospel. Called awaken, because that's the euphemism that the Scriptures use. We're we're asleep, meaning we're dead. And when I, I come alive in Jesus, it's it's an awakening. And we are in this series intermittently, and we put other series in between. So it, it's a longer journey, but we take breaks here and there. We've been in uh, awakened uh, this month. Next week, we're going to take another break. We'll get back to Awaken the, very, for the, the, the last, uh, on New Year's Eve weekend, basically. Because Advent is starting next weekend. Can you believe that? It's pretty rare that Thanksgiving and Advent are kind of at the same time. But this Thanksgiving weekend, Advent starting. And it couldn't be, providentially couldn't be a better time for us to be in the passage where we are. We're about to finish up John chapter 6. And the reason I say providentially is because what we'll be focusing on during Advent is rediscovering awe, and that'll culminate with Christmas Eve, and be thinking about who you can invite to Christmas Eve services, where we're going to be talking about a way in a manger, and looking at who Jesus really is. And the reason I'm saying it's providential is because this passage in John 6 is, is, d- 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 portrays a Jesus very different from the little baby mascot of the holidays. You know, Christmas, It's nostalgia. It's a cute, cuddly Jesus, warm, harmless. And what we'll be talking about on Christmas Eve and throughout this series, and it comes here, is there is something far more than just a cuddly Jesus. The king of the universe came and occupied a a stable carpeted with manure. There's nothing warm and cuddly about that. It's something a little disturbing that he humbled himself intentionally out of love for us. And yes, that love is real, but it's not a sentimental love. It's a sacrificial love, and it's a transformational love. It's not just a supplementary love that kind of is an ornament to my life. Oh, isn't it nice that Jesus loves me? No, when I embrace the love of Jesus, I move from being dead to being alive. And so, I want you to pick up where we left off last week, John chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, open up to the sixth chapter of John. If you don't own a Bible, you can uh, pick one up in the welcome desk afterwards, but for now, you can look up on the screens. So, this is where we were last week. John 6:53. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no what? You have no life in you. What a bizarre statement we spent last week on that, culminating with a powerful time of savoring the bread and the wine, the grape and the grain, two, symbols that Jesus instituted. It's what He was referring to when He says His flesh and His blood. And they're symbols both of His sacrifice as well as for His sustenance and His satisfaction. So bread and wine, broken body, shed blood. He established that as a symbol, but he also talked about flesh and blood being what you're ultimately hungry for, you cannot find anywhere else but in me alone. But that statement, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. You want to be fully alive, then you've got to engage with something that's difficult, that's hard. So as a result, some of them backed off a little bit. So let's pick it up, John 6, verse 60. This is the text for this weekend. We'll finish chapter 6 here. On hearing that, on hearing about the flesh and blood, many of His disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Now, where that His disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? And what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where He was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, They're full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray Him. And He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to Me unless the Father has enabled them. And from this time, many of His disciples turned back and no longer followed Him you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the 12. And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You you have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. And then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. And he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the 12 was later to betray him. Go back to verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. People get confused in that, but understand: there are disciples, and then there are disciples, just as there are church people, and then there are church people. Do you think that the all church people are in this category of being fully alive? Hmm? No. Just because you go into church doesn't make you alive. It's far. It, it has to do with our, our, our engagement with Jesus. So there are church folks that are in this category. So the same was true. There are disciples in both categories. So disciples on this end of the spectrum who, who were dead needing to be fully alive, but they were hearing this. And instead of him presenting himself as a mascot, good luck charm that fits in the back of your pocket, he was, he was making them uncomfortable and they rejected him. Now rejection? There's no doubt. It's not that I know this personally, just in a group of this size, there's somebody, there's folks rejecting Jesus right now. Rejection looks different in a lot of different ways. It can be polite and comfortable. It can be churchy rejection. Hey, yeah, I'll come, I'll tip my hat and and go. Or it can be vehement and, and poisonous and anti. But all of it's still rejection. All of it leaves me in this realm of death in which the way I do my life, I'm, I'm bereft of the privilege of living to the glory of God, of, of eating and drinking and doing business and doing serving and doing acts of justice and kindness and and experiencing fulfillment all to His glory. I miss out on all of that because I'm rejecting Jesus because John said there are two types of people in the world. There are those who are dead and there are those who are alive. And the issue is those who, who who have the Son of God are alive, those who don't have the Son of God don't. So Jesus pinpoints it. Go back to the text. Look at verse 60. He says, All right, this is why some of you are turning away. On hearing it, many of his disciples, this, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? This is verse 60. Now in verse 61, aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Now the Greek word they the Greek word there is a powerful one. It's scandalizo. What English word do you think we get from that? It's scandalous. So Jesus is speaking. Uh, these, these, these folks who are not yet alive, they're, they're hungry for it. They've got a sense this might be it. But then all of a sudden, he sings to me, he says, is this skandalizo to you? Jesus is not backing down. He's not saying, oh, I hope not. If so, let me change what I'm saying. No, he's just wanting to pinpoint. Let's call it for what it is. The gospel is scandalous. It's not easy. They're barriers. They're barriers. If I'm going to engage, not as my friend Pat Morley says, I've I've told him, I'm so glad you don't charge me every time I quote you because I'd, I'd go broke. But there's a Jesus who is, and there's a Jesus that we want. They're not the same. And sometimes when we start realizing the Jesus I want is not the Jesus who is, it's a barrier. And this passage identifies some barriers that keep me from this. It, this is inadequate, these different barriers, because they're really — I've been walking back and forth. You can't walk back and forth. Let's just say they go to that wall and that wall. But four barriers that are come out that are scandalous. The first one is the necessity of the cross that comes out in this passage. The cross is a scandal to people. Are you really? That sounds kind of weird. Then, as if that weren't enough, there's the futility of our good works. We think works can bridge the gap between us and God, between death and life. We, we feel like we can take some credit for this. Then there's the authority of the Word that's scandalous to people, you know, because I got my truth, you got your truth, and you know, your truth might not be my truth, and, but my truth is my truth, and it's inside. And then all of a sudden, don't tell me there's something authoritative above me, something outside of me, some absolute truth. That's scandalous. And then ultimately, the exclusivity of Jesus? you telling me He's the only way? Really? This is 21st century. Scandalizo. And if I'm going to come alive, I've got to grapple with these barriers to keep me from Jesus. If I have come alive, I dealt with them some, but I'll have to keep dealing with them and to, to deepen my faith. So let's go back through them one at a time and talk about them. You made a request a moment ago, Jesus, speak to me. I'm praying right now as I'm talking that He will speak to you, speak to me. Let's deal with the first barrier, the necessity of the cross. Oh, nobody here has anything against the cross. The cross is nice. But we're not talking about the nicety of it. We're talking about the necessity of it. And the more I understand the necessity of it, the less nice I think it is. Go back to the text, John 6, verse 60. On hearing this, many of His disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that His disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, "Do this scandalize you? Does this offend you? Is this scandalous to you? And notice he doesn't say, because if it is, I am so sorry. Let me change what I'm, no. He goes deeper. He says, if this offends you, then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? You're saying, well, I don't understand why, what's he, he says, all right, if you think that stuff, that flesh and blood blood conversation offends you, what if you see the Son of Man ascend? What's, what's so bad about that? Jesus' reference to his crucifixion. He refers to Himself ascending and being lifted up. Go back to John 3, 3, 316, great, for God so loved the world passage. Right before that, uh, Jesus says, John 3, verse 14 and 15, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in Him. To ascend, to be lifted up, is in a threefold sense to Jesus begins with the crucifixion. Crucifixion, the most brutal form of execution, one of the most brutal known to, hum- to humanity. A criminal was laid down, spikes through, right through their wrist. On a crossbar, they were put there and then they were either attached, they attached that cross piece to the stake, this large stake that could have been upwards of 10 feet high or 8 feet high, depends, could be a little bit higher than that. They would attach it and lift them up. Or if the stake was permanently in at some permanent execution sites, then they would take and horrifically take that cross piece with that person attached and then slam it onto that That cross piece forming a T, but it's being lifted up, ascending. That's the first part. Then there's the second ascending, the resurrection, the third, the ascending to the literal ascension of Jesus to heaven. So when you're seeing Jesus talk about being lifted up, it's in that threefold sense, but it begins with the cross. Being lifted up on the cross. The necessity of, he's saying, you think this talk about flesh and blood is offensive, why do we talk about the cross, my crucifixion, me being lifted up? The Son of Man must be lifted up. Uh, John chapter eight, verse twenty-eight. So Jesus said, "When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am the one I claim to be, and that I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak what the Father has taught me." It's a fulfillment of Isaiah. 52. Isaiah 53, the passage of the suffering servant, that he was, he was crushed for our iniquities. Uh, 52 comes right before that, see my servant. This is a messianic text, this is referring to Jesus, Messiah. My servant will act wisely, he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. That's referring to the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred and beyond human likeness. You know, you read that. It's very different. People, hey, got nothing in this category. I got nothing against Jesus. He's cool. A few years ago, I saw American Idol. Somebody told me about it, and so I, I, I looked it up, and this, uh, this contestant sang song, Shout to the Lord. For American Idol, did a they they crushed it. But they also did something else. They changed the word "my savior" to "my shepherd." And some of the conversation was because "savior" was too offensive to people. We just like shepherds. You know the guy with the perm and the manicured nails who speaks in soothing tones. That's not the, the. the Jesus that Isaiah is referring to here. He's not a mascot, He's majestic, and He he humbles Himself. Go back to Isaiah 52. Is for marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Uh, Look at that phrase. So he will sprinkle many nations. Sprinkle many nations with what? His blood. The efficacy, the impact of His death. The power of the cross is not just His physical death, But it's the demonstration of the justice of God. Jesus paid a penalty that it would otherwise take me all eternity to pay because the reason for my death sentence is my rebelliousness against God's rule. Me saying, God, I can be a normal, fulfilled man without you. God manifests itself in so many different ways. My sin separates me from God. I've I've, I've, I've committed an offense against an infinite God which qualifies as an infinite offense that therefore requires an infinite payment. The solution to this with that nice little manicured Jesus who doesn't want to offend anybody and say, you know what, I, I know you didn't mean it. Let's just pretend you didn't do it. If God were to say, it's okay, don't worry about it. He w- it would be a miscarriage of justice and he would no longer be just, which means he would no longer be God. So God in his great love for us says, I want relationship with you. Your sin keeps you from me. So I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to come. And Jesus is the infinite God man died on the cross, not just physically, but paid that spiritual price and was lifted up and by his blood blood, he says, I'm paying a penalty, it would take you eternity to pay. And if any man, woman, boy, or girl would come and say, I ask that your work on the cross be credited to my spiritual account You've been sprinkled with His blood. and Isaiah says, and He will be sprinkled many nations. So, on that great day, at the beginning of the new heaven and the new earth, when the alive gather men and women from every tongue and tribe and nation and people who have been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, who've submitted themselves to the scandal of the cross, who are fully alive, will be there gathered around the Lamb that was slain and saying... Worthy are you, worthy are you, the lamb that has been slain. And Here we've turned the cross into a piece of jewelry. Hmm. The cross is nice, but it's more than nice. Uh, some writers have said that there was no jewelry cross was never a piece of jewelry until three, four hundred, maybe even later. And they say long after anybody who had ever witnessed a crucifixion had died off. No one would have worn a cross back then. I mean, do you see anybody with wearing an electric chair around their neck? Uh, That's saying crosses are bad to, to wear. It's just, let's remember, they're not just pretty. They're a reminder of something precious and powerful. The cross is central, but it's an offense. Galatians chapter 5, verse 11. Brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, he said, basically, if I'm still preaching religious adherence, if I'm still preaching that the way to be alive is just to be to be good. And uh, he said, then why am I still being persecuted? He says, I'm being persecuted because the offense of the cross is there. He says, if I otherwise the offense of the cross has been abolished. Philippians 2, verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on a cross, and it's so much easier to just see the cross as a nice little religious symbol. Like the girl, I read of a guy who was at a jewelry counter and the sales clerk was showing him from various crosses. She's 19, 20 years old and she says, and this one's really pretty. It has a little man on it. We've lost sight of the offense of the cross. The beautiful scandal of the cross. Amazing reminder of how loved you are. 1 Corinthians one twenty three, but we preach Christ crucified. Oh, it's a stumbling block to Jews; it's foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. When I start seeing that the cross is not just nice, it's necessary, and when the necessity of the cross ceases to be a barrier, and I humble myself and I acknowledge I don't want to pay that penalty myself and let it take eternity. I come to him and I can see my debt taken care of. And this barrier, the beauty of coming alive is the barrier becomes part of a bridge called forgiveness in which I say the cross is the means for my slate to be wiped clean. It's what Paul says in Acts 13 when he preaches to the city in Antioch. He says, therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. It's what he says to the Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, in Jesus we have the redemption through His blood, sprinkled by His blood. Yes, gross, crucifixion there, but the beauty of His love is that we have forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He has lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He knows what He's doing. He says, your slate's wiped clean, just trust what my son did, you too. You say, well, what about this sin? He says, what sin? And all of a sudden, what was a barrier? Because something beautiful, because it becomes a, a bridge of forgiveness. But then I've got the futility of my works to still deal with, really at the same time. There's not a one of us that would like to take credit for God's posture towards us that surely we've done something that he's kind of impressed with. Right? Take a look at what Jesus, the scandalous Jesus says. Verse 63, he says, the spirit gives life and the flesh counts for what? Nothing. 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 Is, do you know what the Greek word for nothing there is? Nothing. It's one guy I heard say, it's like zero with a rim taken off. There ain't nothing there. And we would love for the flesh to count, meaning my effort. Oh, yeah, you know, tell me what to do to get God to like me. If I think that my works can bridge the gap, i got a very low view of God and a very elevated view of me. And I don't get His Holiness. Read an article an uh, in interviews about f- from three or four years ago uh, in the New York Times of a very famous politician. You would know, most of you would know who it is. I'm not going to say the name because then you'll get fixated on that in our climate these days. Just want to, but this politician He's in his 70s, attending the 50th anniversary of his class reunion and has done a lot of good stuff. And he was being interviewed and he was reflecting on having seen a lot of his classmates pass away and having buried them. And, but then the, the, the interviewer, the New York Times interviewer, they started talking about death and judgment day. I want you to hear what the, the, um, the author said. But if, and he names this person, senses that he may not have as much time left as he would like, he has little doubt about what would await him at, ju- at a judgment day. Pointing to his work on gun safety, obesity, and smoking cessation, he said with a grin, Quote, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven, and it's not even close. That's the scandal of us not realizing who Jesus is. Not realizing Isaiah 64, 6. that says, our righteousness... Our best efforts at righteousness? Think about it. You got something. You got something there in the trophy case, don't you? This is a pretty good thing I did. Our our best efforts are like filthy rags. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and that offends us. You're telling me that even all of those good works—they're not enough to gain entrance and to 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 get God like me to earn His approval. No, it's not because God is not noticing. It's because. He's high and exalted, and He's way beyond us as Anselm. The early church father said, we have yet to see how terrible a thing our sin is. Because the immensity of it, the depth of it, and it's what human beings don't like grappling with. And let me tell you, if it weren't for the cross, I wouldn't want to go there as well. Be depressing. But Romans 4, verse 4, Paul says not to… To the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift but as an obligation. However to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. So. This whole notion of coming alive is me trusting in what Jesus did on the cross, being forgiven of my sins, and then realizing the futility of my works to bridge the gap, but instead trust, of trusting in my works, trusting in what Jesus has done. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So, what do I do? Jesus says in, in John, later in John, we, we talked about it last week, verse twenty nine. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe, to trust in what Jesus did on the cross. And when I trust what He did on the cross, all of a sudden the futility of my works, instead of being something that angers me, is something that I… I embrace and I submit to and I acknowledge I can't bridge the gap. And when I begin to do with that, that barrier becomes a bridge of grace. And so, I start tasting forgiveness and tasting grace. And instead of the cross being an offense, it becomes something beautiful. And instead of my works being inadequate, they are something that I rely on to express my love. Because good works play a role, but it's just after the fact of my salvation. It's after I come alive, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. Grace has God given me not what I deserve, but what I need. He said, it's the gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. Religious people, we all love to boast. This, this crowd, man, don't you love… We have nothing. Jesus is the flesh counts for nothing, zero, rim taken off, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, so the good works play a role, of course, after we come to Jesus. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So yeah, works matter, but they matter once I'm alive. They can't get me to being alive, only Jesus can. And so that barrier that's become a bridge of forgiveness and that barrier that's become a bridge of grace leads me to a barrier that a lot of us struggle with and it's the authority of the Word. The necessity of the cross is one thing, the futility of my works is another, but the authority of the Word, ho, ho. I got my truth, you got yours. Don't tell me how to live my life. The fact that there is an ultimate external source of absolute truth? You talk about scandalizo in our culture. Look at the second part of verse 63 in John 6. He said, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and full of life. Guys, if you just Instead of, put the pride aside and say, hear me, I'm the one who made you. I know best how you operate. Listen to my words. It's my instruction to you. Yes, it's authoritative. Listen that you might live. What he was saying there is direct fulfillment of the prophecy in Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 37, it's a messianic text. The hand of the Lord was on me. I might even get excited reading this, this part. And he, he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley and it was full of bones. So he's full of dead bones. He's right here in this valley of the shadow of death. And yes, common grace exists here. We love, we laugh, we create, but we're dead. What needs to be, what needs to happen here? We need to be, need to be spoken to, breathed into. Timothy talks about God's Word is God, the Word, the Scriptures are God breathed. He says, he set me in the middle of the valley, it was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them. So this is Messiah speaking. I saw a great many bones in the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, son of man, can these bones live? Son of man, one of Jesus' favorite terms for himself. Why? Because of this. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Prophesy. and say to them, dry bones, hear the Word of the Lord. If any of you are right here, I say to you as a fellow human being, hear the Word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. Somebody says to you, I'll make breath into you and you'll come to life. You think you were creative before? Oh, you don't know anything yet. You have life to the full. I'll attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you will come to life. And then you will know that I am the Lord. John three verse 34 for the one whom God sent has sent speaks the words of God for God has given the, gives the spirit without limit he has spoken one of the great points of hope in my journey is that God has spoken Our Pride gets in the way. All of the conniving of the enemy who wants to steal and to kill and destroy says you don't want to trust any external truth source and authority in your life. You be your own boss, master of your own fate, captain of your own destiny. Don't pay attention to this. Elizabeth Barrett Browning, one of the famous poets that many of us are aware of, she got married when she was 46 years old, middle of the 1800s. Her parents did not approve. She was Elizabeth Barrett. She married Robert Browning. They didn't approve of Robert Browning. They didn't approve of this marriage. It produced a wedge between them, a rift. And then she began writing them after the wedding, every week, humbling herself, asking for reconciliation, forgiveness. For 10 years, she wrote. After 10 years, she received a box in the mail from her parents and it was every one of her letters unopened how about it you think that's so sad it is this is his word it's his authority it's a word that is truth and he says open it Not as a religious manual, but as a manual for your humanity. And that barrier of the authority of His Word becomes a deep blessing, a bridge of truth. And what does truth do? John chapter 8 verse 31, Jesus says, as I speak to you, as I breathe into your journey as a human being, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you impressively religious. Are you kidding me? The truth will make you free as a human being. You who were dead, you're now alive. And then we come to this one. The exclusivity of Jesus that's even more of an offense in our culture. Our relativistic and pluralistic culture. Pluralism has come to mean because of the chains and the tentacles of relativism. Pluralism in its purest form says all views, all religious views are welcome. We're e pluribus unum as a culture, as a a nation. It's on our currency. But that has ceased to mean all views are welcome. And it's become to mean all views are true. Which is a leap into illogic. You can't have contradictory views all be true. Well, there are many ways to God. Jesus is just one of them. (sighs) Hmm. Many ways to life. Jesus is okay for you. Go back to the text. Look at what Peter says. So Jesus says to them in verse 69, verse 67, He turns to His disciples. All these people are leaving because of the scandalizo. He's revealing Himself to be anything but tame and manageable and cowering and saying, hey, what do you want? I'll provide. So people are leaving. So He turns to His twelve and He says, you do not want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter, I love him, he's always just… he speaks first, thinks later, but it's… he's he's saying it, you know, at at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus said, who do people say that I am? They give some answers. He said, well, who do you say that we are? Who speaks up first? Peter. Well, you're the Messiah. He does the same thing here and it's awesome. Simon Peter would answer him, Lord, are you kidding me? That's in the Greek. You don't really see it in the English. (laughs) To whom shall we go? You. And the emphasis there is emphatic, you alone, you alone have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? You and I live in this culture, this pluralism, the relativism that says, your truth's your truth, and your truth's your truth. And Jesus, there's one truth, and this is the way. There's not another way. And people say there are many ways from, to, to life. There are many ways to God. Jesus is just one of them. If there are many ways to God, please hear this. If there are many ways to God, Jesus is not one of them, and he says so himself. John 14, verse 6, he says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's not a statement of arrogance, nor is it a statement of naivete. It's simply a statement of truth. He's saying, I'm exclusive. I'm the author of life. I'm the only one that can restore you to life. And when I begin to engage with Jesus in his exclusivity and submit before him and understand, it's either him or not nothing It's a powerful thing when I see this barrier become a bridge of his enoughness Who is enough to bring you life and me life in our marriages, and our work, and our relationships, in our journey as human beings, as creativity. It's men and women that first encountered the necessity of the cross and it became a beautiful symbol of forgiveness. And the futility of works is not something that hurts our feelings. We realize we need grace and we start doing good works. And the authority of Scripture becomes something that's precious and beautiful to us because we realize the truth is what will set us free. And then to say Jesus is exclusive, we got no problem problems with that, because He is the way, the truth, the life, and no one will come to the Father but by Him. And plenty of religious leaders have made claims. Jesus backed them up with the resurrection, and He says, come live. I'm not interested in your religiosity, but I am interested in you living as an image bearer to my glory. I'd like to ask you right now to stand in the presence of Jesus alone. I'm going to ask our worship team to come up. And we're about to make a proclamation regarding the cross, regarding grace, regarding truth, and regarding the Lordship and the majesty of Jesus as our chief cornerstone. Let's pray. And then we'll sing, and then you'll head out into a Thanksgiving week, which I hope will really be a thankful week, whatever you're dealing with. Because we got the gospel. <laughs> Good news. Jesus, thank you for every man, woman, boy, or girl here. I thank you for this community called Northland, and I ask that you would enable us to engage each other in a culture to be fully alive, to not shout at people, but to journey with people, to listen to the barriers that people have. That means that they're grappling authentically with you because you're scandalous. It's not easy, but you love us in the midst of the wrestling. I thank You for the forgiveness, and the grace, and the truth, and the enoughness that comes with trusting You. So Jesus, I, I entrust my friends to You and ask that You would give them the freedom to live but who's Your cornerstone you're the rock, you're the way, you're the truth, (laughs) and you're the life. Amen and amen.